Hi there. This is City Book and Company, a chatty little podcast that dishes and dotes on the upstarts, icons, dreamers, and doers of Houston, the most fascinating city in America. I'm Jeff Grimion, the editor of Houston City Book Magazine and HoustonCityBook.com, and I'm your host. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of City Book and Company. Today, we will be continuing our fun conversation with multi-Emmy winning interviewer Ernie Manus, also a friend of mine, been with public TV here in Houston for a quarter century. You know, he famously doesn't tell his age. I've read that in a couple of articles about him. He won't tell you how old he is, but he's been around for 25 years doing this work. So he's got some status regardless, and he's a really cool guy, fun to talk to. Looking forward to hearing more from Ernie in just a short while. Before that, let me reintroduce my guest co-host for today, Patrick McGee, who is uh, also the creative director of City Book Magazine. Hey, Patrick. Hi, thanks for having me. So glad you're here. You know, one of the things I wanted to talk with you about, you know, I'm thinking about getting a dog. I've never had a pet. I was never raised with animals. And more and more and more, I'm thinking I need to try that at some point in my life. And maybe the time is now. I love everything that comes through Twitter or social media with cute dogs. I'm like, why? I need a dog. What's going on here? You actually had a similar experience. You wanted a pet. And we talked about that for a while. And you did it at some point early in the COVID experience. You decided to get a dog. You have Mikey now. What came over you? What was that process like? Tell us about Mikey. You know, I was a first time dog owner as well. And so I took the process pretty slow. I mean, it took probably a year to pull the trigger. And I went to this great place called Friends for Life in the Heights. And there are no kill shelter. And they take in dogs that are pretty sickly or, you know, have behavioral issues or this or that. And they completely nurse them back to help before they're even up for adoption. You know, they have a, a vet team on site that, you know, will nurse the dog back to health, whether it's physical or behavioral issues or this or that. And then before you can adopt them, there's a long interview process. Like, I think I had a phone interview and then I think two wow. in-person interviews, like you're applying for a job, like they take, they take a lot serious. of care yeah. and make, yeah. And making sure wherever <laughs> the, their pet's going to go, that it's there for the long term and this and that. But I liked it because they did take it so slow and it wasn't a breast decision or, or this or that. And French life is great because not only do they take a lot of care in the dogs they take in, but they give back to the community a lot. And like when the winter storm hit and George R. Brown turned into a warming center before it even hit. And they were just taking in like the homeless population friends for life had a vet there that stayed the night and anybody who brought their pet had free vet services and, shots and whatever, you know, sort of whatever you needed, which is so cool. Yeah. So I found Mikey on a visit to friends for life. He was found right after Harvey. So his life is sort of like one crisis to the next because he was found right after Harvey and then adopted right at the beginning of COVID. So between Harvey and COVID, he was at the shelter and with some great foster parents and they do a training class there. Mikey was the co-instructor with a human, but those two taught the course together. And then they invited us to come back to go for Mikey to attend the class as a student this time. And they had a new co-teacher, which is just different dog, but we only got to go to a couple of those classes before COVID hit and they, you know, canceled them. So yeah, he's just been such a joy. And I think you should pull the trigger on a dog. 
You should go to Friends for Life. (laughs) I know. I'd say 50-50 or better that that will happen. Well, thanks, Patrick. You're a great dog dad and a good friend and a great creative director for the magazine, and we're happy to have you along for the ride today. We are going to pick up where we left off last week with more with the great Ernie Manus right after this short break. Thanks. With interest rates being as low as they are, like so many other Americans, I recently refinanced my home. I shopped around a lot of the big national mortgage companies and the big banks, and I thought I'd do myself the favor of checking out a local Houston-based company, too. I was delighted when Envoy Mortgage not only found the best deal for me, but made it all so easy. Nice Houston folks held my hand through the entire process, most of which I was able to do from my house. It was convenient because you can automatically connect your bank statements, your tax records, and your income documentation right from your phone or your tablet or your laptop. You don't have to worry all the time about how it's going as the process goes along because you get updated on each step of the process and receive video guides and helpful articles along the way. And it's pretty darn fast. Envoy's loan origination and underwriting is all done under one roof, which means your loan moves quickly. Envoy can help you whether you're buying a new home or refinancing. They even have special programs for first-time home buyers and veterans. Envoy Mortgage wants you to love your mortgage experience. Check them out at EnvoyMortgage.com and tell them Jeff from CityBook sent you. And now back to our show. So there's Pacino. That's not the only like draw dropping big celebrity you've interviewed, is it? Name drop a little for us. Who who else is, have you had on your on your couch? Oh, I don't know. Yes, Just you about, do. It's a good cross section of life has been there. <laughs> Everyone from I guess Beyonce to Julie Andrews to Condoleezza Rice. The youngins like Tom Holland. They're always excited I interviewed Tom. Lyle Lovett's a good friend. I can never keep track of it anymore. But I mean, for every big name like that, there's probably 20 most of you have never heard of. So <laughs> don't want to give a, a, I'm no Barbara Walters here, but I get by. Who are your favorites? Who stands out? Uh, Patty Lupone, absolutely. And it's funny because she was the very first one we did for the series interviews. And she stands out because we expected a terror because you've heard the diva stories and all of that. It was our first one out of the gate, so we were a little concerned. And she shows up, knocks at the door to the hotel suite we had set up for the interview, and she comes in, and she's like, hi, I'm Patty. I'm here to talk with Ernie. Just so sweet and gentle and funny and warm, and it was a great way to start. Had she been impossible, I think it would have changed if we had done the whole series, but... She just made us feel welcome doing it. It was a great interview, and it's one of my all-time favorites. So she stands out as a favorite, definitely. And then, you're not going to answer this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Who sucked? Who was just a big old jerk? I won't tell you the name. (laughs) I've been known when I'm asked to do, like, speaking at community groups and stuff like that, and they get to the question and answer part. I tend to give names there. But since this is being recorded, I will tell you, (laughs) she was, is well-known, had a very successful program in the 80s, TV show in the 80s, but came out of a rich Hollywood career. And she was just so difficult. 
Um, she came in and immediately complained about, she was 45 minutes late first, of course, and then complained about the lighting setup because she seemed to think that the lights were set better for me than for her, which was not true because we always gave the guests the better lighting, especially a woman of a certain age. You want to flatter your guests. But she insisted on changing chairs so she could sit in my chair. Then other things, I don't want to give them away because if you watch the show, you'll know exactly who I'm talking about, so I don't want to say. But it got to the point, my director, who has always been great, we've worked together for years, he wanted to walk out. He didn't want to even tape the show. She was so impossible. And so we sat down, just about ready to roll tape, and she says out to the room, not to anyone in particular, I can't believe they didn't even call to see what side my hair was going to be parted on. (laughs) <laughs> because she felt that the way it was parted, it was casting a shadow on her face. But to point out, had she stayed in the chair she had originally been assigned, the lighting would have been proper for the part in her hair. But we made it through, and the interview itself is fine. But uh, that will always be the one we always uh, look to as our worst experience. Her, uh, her publicist and I became friendly after the fact. And uh, he did say, you got to think, when, when you're an actress of a certain age and you have built a certain career, the one thing you have to fight for and hold on to is your look, is the way you want to be presented. That becomes your full-time job. And so she may have been a bit more concerned with that than others we came across. It is amazing though, the sheer number of people we've done, how rarely we come across that. That's why it stands out too. They're usually so cool. They know what they've signed on to. I'm not a hard interview by any means, but I may be a more thoughtful one. I think I mine areas they haven't thought about in a while. I think the thing we get most often from guests is, wow, I've never been asked that, or wow, I hadn't thought about that in a while. And those are always good signs for me that we're somewhere. And when you get to talk about something you haven't talked about a million times, you're much more genuine, open about it. There's nothing worse than the guest who knows the answers and it's going to give the same answers and they've got them patented answers mm-hmm. or those that never have that magic moment and never break from knowing they're on camera. We had one who midway through the interview would turn and acknowledge the camera and wink <laughs> at an answer and things like that. And it's like, come on, you know, we're not playing that game. So, you know, Bernie, I have a fun memory of you interviewing Christian Chenoweth live. Oh, I, yeah. I was in the audience and she performed a couple of songs and then you guys became pals after that. Dude, She was a sweetheart, you know, she was everything you think she is. And, you know, so often you think, well, when they're really sweet and their persona is really sweet, they rarely are that. She's it. She really was that deal. And after the show, we had gotten along so well that she was like, oh, I want to spend more time with you. It's like, oh, I want to spend more time with you. She's like, what are you doing tomorrow night? And I'm like, well, nothing. Why? She's like, well, I'm doing the symphony ball in Dallas. Would you like to come? (laughs) <laughs> and she invited us to the ball. And so we went to the symphony ball in Dallas, just up and left and went there and got to spend the night with her. It was, it was crazy. She was, she was great. I can, that is a great story. I don't mind. I'll dish and I'll name drop and I'll tell you who my favorite interview was okay, and who my least favorite was. My favorite was Maya Angelou. Oh, she was so ridiculously sweet to me. And I believe I was the last person to ever interview her. I was interviewing her to help promote. She was coming to do a, you know, a lecture or something in Houston. And we did it over the phone. And uh, 
she got sick shortly after that and had, had to cancel the trip. And then shortly after that, she passed away. So I may have been the last person that ever interviewed her, but she was so sweet. And she said, are you planning to come to the lecture? And I said, well, I, I wasn't, but now that we've met and I, I adore you, I definitely need to come. She said, please, you must come. I'll never forget what she said. She said, I will call out to you. Aww. And then dang it, she died, you know, just shortly after that. But she was, could not have been more lovely. And I obviously, you know, one of the most important poets ever, oh, yeah. ever to come out of America and just such a, a lovely person and a lovely thinker. Mm-hmm. The worst, Martha Stewart. And by the way, I, I admire her now. I've gotten past, you know, our hard feelings. Uh, <laughs> but has she? Has I'm she not sure. <laughs> but, you know, once upon a time, she knew who I was and she didn't like me. And, and, and her publicist <laughs> made that clear. I used to write a news column on the magazine business in New York. This was whenever Martha Stewart Living was pretty new. And I reported on her business. And she didn't like some of the things that I, I would I would always call her and try to get her, her her people to tell me, and they wouldn't. Are you are you buying something, selling? You know, you know, business reporting. Yeah. And um, I reported something that she didn't like, and she made it pretty clear to me that she did not like me. I, I, I saw her at, a, at, a, at an event once, and she stared me down across the room. <laughs> and once wanted it, uh, I interviewed her a couple of times, but this one of the times, she had the publicist. Her publicist on there was also a phoner. It was a three-way call, and the publicist was on there, and I was not allowed to talk directly to Martha. I had to ask the question to the publicist, and the publicist would then relay it to Martha, and she would say things like, "You know, please tell him I don't like that question." Like, so (laughs) I I have to say, and it was shortly after that she went to jail, and I was happy. I mean, I guess if I had a story like that, I would say their name. (laughs) I've rethought it. You know, I don't think she should have gone to jail. I think that she was railroaded, and that's my personal opinion. And I've I've decided that all these years later, I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to be the bigger person. So Martha, (laughs) if you're listening, because of course, of course, she's listening. I mean, Martha Stewart definitely listens to City Book and Company. So right, um, so she's going to know about this. (laughs) But at least she knows now you have moved on, and maybe she can too. I've I've built a bridge. It's all about healing. So I noticed my electricity bill was getting out of hand. It was time to do that thing all we Houstonians have to do from time to time. You know what I mean. You have to go through the hassle of switching to a new provider to get a better deal. And then over time, the prices creep up on you again after the contract period ends. And then you have to do the whole thing over again, all over again, sometime later. It's maddening. Thank goodness a friend told me about Real Simple Energy. This is a new company, Houston-based, started by two friendly local young professionals, Trent and Paul. They're both around 40. And what they do is find you the cheapest deals, the cheapest deals for you. They present you three options, one of which will always be green if that's important to you. You pick, and they handle the busy work of getting you switched over. You will save a ton of cash. Most folks save around 500 bucks a year. I actually think I'm going to save a little bit more than that. And the best part... When your contract ends and your prices start sneaking up on you, they get more cheap options in front of you again and do the whole process again and take care of you getting switched over the whole nine yards. Nobody else does what they do. You will never pay for electricity again, never hassle with providers, only deal with real simple. Set it and forget it. Never worry about this stuff again and have peace of mind. Don't let the big providers take advantage of you anymore. Sign up and start saving today at realsimpleenergy.com. And if you use promo code CityBook, you'll get an additional 50 bucks off your first bill.
Let's talk a minute about a quirky little thing that came up for you that became kind of a big deal. I love Downton Abbey. <laughs> I was a big fan. And then you came up with this. Tell me how it's the show called what's called Manner of Speaking. And it went all over the world and back again, didn't it? And it was a fascinating idea for a show and really quirky and fun. Well, it was basically an after show, but it was at a time when there weren't after shows. So we right, were you, pretty you were on the, the cutting beginning. edge, yeah. Yeah, we were one of the first to do it. We got written up in Emmy Magazine, which I thought was just so cool that Emmy Magazine was talking about this new trend, and they looked at three different after shows, and one of them was ours. And I was like, "This is." we got written up in the New York Times for it, so it was, it was awesome. It was a good ride. What had happened was, if you want the story... I do. I was shooting a pledge special for PBS. I do a lot of these, what we call virtuals, and I was in... Ireland shooting a show with Celtic Thunder and it was the week before my birthday and so I was over there and I thought you know I'm I'm alone but we're going to wrap on Friday night and Sunday is my birthday I'm going to fly to Amsterdam and I'm going to celebrate my birthday weekend in Amsterdam and then I'll fly home to Houston so on the flight right before the flight actually I started not feeling too well And by the time I got to Amsterdam, I felt like I had a flu or something. I got to my hotel room and or my guest cottage, I should say. And I was unpacking and I always travel with a digital media player so I can watch my shows that I want to watch. And I had season one and two of Downton Abbey on there. So while I was unpacking and doing stuff, I thought, you know, I should start watching it. I'd watch season one when it first came out, but it'd been so long and I knew season three was coming and I needed to catch up on two. So I started watching it. Well, the combination of Downton Abbey and my flu kept me in my hotel room my whole weekend. I didn't even go out for my birthday. And I watched both seasons of Downton Abbey in my bed in Amsterdam. And the problem was after each episode, I wanted to talk to someone about it, but nobody else was watching it when I was watching it because I was watching on my own and nobody back home could I talk to about it. So I started thinking, you know what, I'm probably like a lot of folks who watch Downton Abbey at home and their other family members are watching sports downstairs because it's a Sunday night or are doing something and they don't have someone to share it with. And I thought about the PBS audience. So I came back to Houston and our station manager, executive producer at the time said, you know, maybe we can do a pledge show around Downton Abbey because it's doing so well and people really love the show. And it aired on public media. Yeah. Right, it was on PBS. And I was like, no, I got a better idea. Why don't we try an after show where we'll talk about what happened on the show? And that was the beginning of the idea. And as always, they have been very supportive of me and saying, well, try it. You know, Houston Public Media, for the most part, for me, has been a great playground to try ideas. And I think the longevity of my career there has been the ability to try new things every couple of years and do something different. So it hasn't been like I've been on the same chat show for 25 years. Every couple of years, I'm doing something different. And I think that's helped with the longevity. And they've been great about that. So in this particular case, it was like, okay, try it. So I got together with Matt, my director. And we've pretty much evolved Matt Brawley. We've evolved most of our product together. and Which is we weird because doing... the character in the show is Matt Crawley, right? Right, Matthew Crawley. But Matt Brawley was my director. Which is just... Long before Matthew Crawley. Way too meta, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> so he came up with the idea of the title, Manner of Speaking. I was like a good pun, and we threw a whole bunch around. But he owns the rights to that one. He came up with it. And it kind of evolved just 
it was like everything aligned perfectly. I had known Helen Mann for years and I knew I wanted to do something with her. And so before we had any idea what the show was, I asked her if she would do it with me. And she said, absolutely. And we had nobody else. I had no idea what the format of the show was, but she agreed. And then I had another guy. We'd come up with the idea of having a butler because we wanted to do social media on the show, but we thought it didn't fit in the time period. So I couldn't have a computer on the set or anything. So we thought, oh, we'll have a butler deliver you the social media information. So we had another actor set up to do it. And about a week before we were taping the pilot, he said he had gotten a movie gig. And the problem was he thought he would be done, but he wouldn't be able to commit to every episode of the show. And we had such a low budget, we only had one tuxedo we could get. And so it had to fit the one person. We couldn't have multiple tuxedos. And as chance would have it, I went into the kitchen at the station and there was a friend of mine. I told her my dilemma and she was like, well, you know, Luke, he's in the recording studio right now. You should ask him. He loves Downton Abbey. So I went in and asked him if he would be my butler. And he said yes. And he was with me the whole run of the show. Got an Emmy nomination for his performance as Mr. Rogers. So uh, it, it all just came together beautifully. And didn't someone point out that technically he shouldn't have been Mr. Rogers but just, just Rogers. Yes. Well, we never did figure out what his first name was. He should have just been called a singular name. And, but because we were on PBS and Mr. Rogers, and that, if I remember correctly, was Luke's idea to call him Mr. Rogers. So he had brought the idea and he created the whole character, which really was a thankless job. And he brought so much to it. Like he just had to stand there. Most people don't even realize he's in the show the whole time. But he's just standing in the background, just waiting for me to call him forward to bring the tweets. And uh, it just it was it was a pure joy. It's the thing I'll probably most be remembered for. But once again, with the variety of things I've got to do every time, I think I've closed the chapter of what I'm going to do at public media. Something else happens. It's never planned per se. It's just happenstance. And I think we're good at staying in contact with what's in the zeitgeist what people are thinking about or feeling. And it's that sense of being in touch with that, that you can develop product that fits it and, and has a service to it. Another project you worked on for Houston Public Media that I really liked was A Murder in Montrose, the documentary about the murder of Paul Roussard in the Montrose. And uh, <laughs> you were one of the first openly gay men on TV in Houston, maybe the first. Was that defining? Was it just something that happened, happenstance, or is there anything? Patrick, I think you just outed Ernie on our podcast. <laughs> I, I, it would take, I don't is think that would out. a big secret. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, my God. Were you, no, the, were um, you the first? Anise Parker told me she thought I was once. She thought she was the first out on TV lesbian, and I was the first out on TV gay man. By far, I wasn't, but I don't know if I was the first one that was that publicly embraced it. And I apologize if there is somebody, and I'm speaking out of turn, because they were the true trailblazer. I just was here. What had happened was I'd come from Chicago, and in Chicago, I had a radio show, as we mentioned at the beginning, and I'm, I had come out in the media there before that, and I was profiled in, in the gay rags, as we call them, out there. So when I moved to Houston never even occurred to me, you know, how do I reposition this? Because if anybody looks me up, they'll be able to find this. So I thought there's no point in pretending anything else. It's who I am. I'm, I have no worry about it. And then Outsmart Magazine, Blaise Stefano did an interview with me. And in it, he, 
he featured the fact that I was gay. And I thought, wow, this is the first time down here that it's coming out in print that broadly, not that I was hiding anything. And so I went to the station after the interview and I said, I just want you to know this happened. So you're aware that this is going to come out. Remember, this was 25 years ago and they were, couldn't have been better with me about it. You know, over the years, there have been points, there have been management where I have not synced up with perfectly and gotten along with a hundred percent. But on this issue, I have never had a problem and always felt embraced by the station and respected for who I am. And so that's been a great environment to work in. And I think having that ability to be honest with who you are helps you when you're in a creative medium, trying to create and do fresh and new things. And you want to bring your authentic self to what you're doing. And so, yeah, that was something I was very fortunate to have that support. And yeah, it's been it's who I am. So no, Patrick, you did not help me. <laughs> Dang, I was trying to have some breaking news. <laughs> Dang, I know. Try again. There's other things, I'm sure. <laughs> A little detour here. You've hosted Spelling Bees, haven't you? You've- oh, yeah. And when they first came <laughs> to me and said they wanted me to host the Spelling Bee, I was in fear. I wouldn't even be able to pronounce the words, let alone spell them. And I was guaranteed for my very first one, and I've done all of them at HPM. I've been the host. I only have to introduce the spellers and talk about them, never realizing I would have so much trouble with their names alone. (laughs) And so I have pretty much shown my hands that reading is not high on my list of things I do well. And it has to do with an education. I'll tell you anyway. So upstate New York, we were an experimental school district. They taught us a different language called ITA. And we learned to read an ITA and we learned to write an ITA. It was a totally phonetic alphabet. And around second or third grade, they shift you from ITA to English. And about 50% of the kids make a smooth transition. and The other 50% don't. But because so many of us didn't, they passed us right along. So we never were held back because we couldn't spell or had trouble reading. But it's because we don't know your language. And so... English is a second language to me outside of how wild. Yeah. It's weird. I I didn't, I remembered it and then I didn't realize, didn't think I remembered it honestly. So I went back and did some research into it and it's true. So, yeah. So we didn't out you as gay, but I think we just outed you as a bad speller. Yeah. Pretty much illiterate. That'll be the. (laughs) A friend of mine in college once said, so what are you reading? And I said, oh, I'm reading Gone with the Wind. And she said, oh, my God, it's going to take you as long to read it as it took to write it. Because <laughs> it notoriously took 10 years to write. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, that is all right. Never been so, strong. So we'll, we'll skip the spelling bee portion. Thank you. This is not the first time, I believe, that we three have been together in a public setting. We were all, <laughs> we were all co- uh, judges for Pride Idol. Mm-hmm. That was a fun experience. I don't think I was very good at it, but I did my best. Uh, you're the Simon, aren't you, Ernie? Yeah, I kind of took on that role when Pride Idol started back, I don't know how many years ago. Tell, uh, tell, tell listeners what that is. Oh, well, Joey Guerra had kind of come up with the concept, and it was you know a singing contest based like American Idol, but it was done with Pride Houston as a way to promote the Pride Parade and also to find talent to perform at the festival beforehand. And I came in a couple nights late into it. And I just thought, you know what? These, I'm tired of listening to all the flowery comments about it, you know? And it was the time of American Idol, and Simon had, had been mean. 
And it's not that I try to be mean. I try and be honest with them. But like we said earlier, when you're in front of an audience, you got to be playing to an audience too. So you got to find the way you think it's going to make them laugh or be shocked or react or get involved with what you're doing. So when then after I did it for a number of years and then I left, it became Pride Superstar. I came back the last couple seasons of it, but I think a quieter, gentler, sweeter Ernie came back than the old Ernie that used to do it the other time. But the world had changed too. You know, that Simon being mean to people, that kind of has passed. I don't think people enjoy that as much anymore. At least I don't. And so I tried to be nicer when I could be. <laughs> well, Patrick, of course, was the Paula. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, and I, it's like you would go and you'd say something really biting and sharp and smart. And Patrick would say something super sweet, like, you know, your outfit was just beautiful. Something. Yeah. That, you know. I love the lighting. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 yeah. <laughs> and that smile, the way you smile. But and I never knew what to say. But I just wind up saying things like, you know, I like the song. I think you picked a good song. I, yeah, but song choice is very important. My thought on the whole thing is, each one of us gives them something different to think about in their performance. So maybe Patrick is going to talk about setting and feel and emotion that you get from it, which is just as important. And I'm going to talk about, you know, maybe believability or presence in what they're doing exactly, looking at it from the eye of somebody who would be looking at something on a TV screen and trying to think, what do we do to perfect that? And, you know, I can be harsh. I think for the most part, though, the singers appreciated it. They would talk to me afterwards. They didn't feel, they oftentimes knew what I was saying was right, but they were embarrassed of it. They screwed something up. But, uh, you know, City Book Superstar, I'm there. We will put that on the drawing board. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, one last question for you. So uh, this is, I, I've been doing interviews my whole life as a print journalist. This is really one of my first forays into doing something closer to a broadcast interview. In this interview that's uh, all about you, Ernie, let me ask you this. How do you think I'm doing? <laughs> I think you're doing really well. If I can give you some critique, I'm putting on my Simon hat. Please. Oh, good. That's per- perfect segue. Yes. <laughs> The pauses are great during an answer, but be right there with the next question when the person's done. Well, but but see what happens is uh, the producer will remove all those pauses. So when the <sighs> when the listener hears this, I'm telling a secret. Luke, was that okay if I told? Um, it will seem seem it will not seem as if I was fumbling for the next question at all. It will seem as if I was sharp as attack and quick on the uptake, and the reader will never know. Except now we've just told them. Well, we've given it away. And they're not readers. <laughs> I will say together, both of you, really good interviews and really good questions. And they, they took me places I don't often go. So thank you. Thank you, Ernie. We appreciate the compliment. Thank you for doing this. I look forward to seeing you around. Thank you, guys. Bye, Ernie. Bye. CityBook and Company is a production of CityBook Media and Milieu Media Group. This episode was produced, edited, and mixed by Luke Bronner. The music you've heard in this episode was licensed from Blue Dot Sessions. Artwork is designed by Patrick McGee. You'll find links to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter in the show notes. Visit HoustonCityBook.com for the latest news and notes on the most fascinating city in America. 